From the Canon Institute, this is The Russia File. I am Maxim Trudolubov. Russia is often seen as a country that was once on a path to democracy, but was led astray by a former KGB officer. Informed by his training and character, Vladimir Putin turned himself into an all-powerful leader and Russia became the autocracy it is today. But what if he simply was helpless to do any better? Recognizing Russia as one of many autocracies of today's world, from Turkey to Venezuela, brings into sharp focus the limits on Putin's power, the blunt tools of power, policy trade-offs, weak state institutions. Joining me to discuss all this and more is Timothy Fry, whose book, Weak Strong Men, The Limits of Power in Putin's Russia, will be out this month. Timothy Fry is the professor at the Department of Political Science at Columbia University, New York. He used to lead the university's Harriman Institute, an organization dedicated to studying Russia. He's also a director of the International Center for the Study of Institutions and Development at the Higher School of Economics in Moscow. So let's discuss the kind of research Professor Fry's book is built on and then go from there. I've just read your book and uh, that felt really good because you're using a lot of research. I do know some of it, but the fact that you note in the book is not very well known in uh, the United States or in the, let's say, English-speaking academia that has to do with Russia is actually very interesting. It tells me something because I always had this question about understanding of Russia in the West, particularly in the United States. Russia is very politicized, or it seems to be politicized in, in the state, and not in a good way. There are lots of stereotypes, and it's kind of almost a caricature of a country, or seems to be. On the other hand, it's clear that there is an abundance of knowledge about Russia in the U.S. universities. There are excellent books written by both Americans and Russians and others published outside of Russia in foreign languages, particularly in English. Why do you think this exists? How does it come into existence, this duality of understanding? The political one is something very special, and there's academic one, which is also sort of special, and they both exist in kind of in a bubble of their own. It's a great question, and I think it's even more puzzling than you state, because we not only have very good academic research on Russia, I think one could argue that the kinds of journalistic reporting and long-form essay writing on Russia is better than on lots of uh, other countries as well. If you look at the New Yorker, if you look at the you know quality of journalistic reporting. That's true. Or, That's actually true. Yes, I do read um, some of that stuff. Yes. So it's doubly puzzling why more nuanced views about Russia don't break through. There are a number of reasons. One is the cynical view that there are people who benefit from perpetuating these kinds of stereotypes about Russia. And that's part of the problem. I think there are, for political reasons, uh, efforts to inflate the threat from Russia or just to make Russia seem more mysterious than other countries. And part of that is a, you know, a strategy of inflating your expert credentials by saying, look, you can't understand Russia if you don't speak the language, you haven't been there. Russia is different from all these other countries. So there is some kind of turf protecting, I think, that goes on. But I don't think that's the main problem. Another problem is that, look, it's hard to understand Russia. It's far away for most people. The politics are very 
opaque. It's a complicated place to understand. And it's easier to rely on stereotypes. You can point to things that the the Kremlin does that fit a lot of the stereotypes. There are a lot of things the Kremlin does also defies those stereotypes. More recently, a problem is that there is just the reduction in appreciation for expertise on lots of issues. If you look across issues within the United States, political debate has become highly polarized. And that makes it much more difficult, I think, to break through with a more nuanced view of not just Russia policy, but policy towards Iran and policy on domestic issues, too, where it's harder to use data, as I try to do in the book, to pierce through that you know, veil of partisanship and ideology that has really driven American politics, particularly in the last five or six years. So basically, is this Sovietology or Kremlinology persisting in the politicians? Yeah, in politicians and somewhat in analysts, too. One of the things I highlight in the book is that the generation of Russia experts that I'm in and in generation younger than me were trained in very different methods than the generation that came before us. We were trained much more in social science methods and comparative research and in quantitative research. That does take an extra step for people in academia to, to make that kind of work accessible to politicians and the general public. And frankly, academia hasn't generally been very good about rewarding particularly younger scholars for engaging in that kind of outreach effort. So that's also a problem. For me, I'm at the stage of my career where I can do that. I don't have to worry about tenure. So to be able to write a book where I'm able to review a lot of this really interesting research on Russia and translate it for a general audience something that I really wanted to do. And that's exactly the point. And that's something that's so important about your book, because you bring to a general audience in an accessible way, the kind of research that many Russianists probably know as a writer, journalist in Russia, and somebody who's working in English as well. And I do know this, but then it's so interesting to see this presented. There are People who follow Russia closely and who follow this literature will find some arguments that are familiar to them and references to studies that they may have seen. There will also be some things, I think, that are new. But the book was really written for people who identify less as Russia experts than as people who are Russia curious. Exactly. I mean, that's what's so valuable, hopefully, when it uh, finally gets to the reader, because that's what I think is really important to break through from the Sovietology mindset. In writing the book, I had some of my friends from college who are have little to do with Russia. I had some of my son's parents at his school read the book who are working on Broadway or working in finance and, uh, you know, strike up conversations with me about Russia. And I gave them the book to say, look, if there's anything in here that's unclear to you or that you find really dull, let me know. They were kind enough to read it and give me feedback. And that kind of non-academic, non-journalistic feedback was really helpful for the book, I think. Russia's power has never changed hands as a result of an election. 
regularly scheduled election, we might say. Yeah. So it's the first thing that's like from the top of your head that you have it immediately like, oh, yes, they don't have elections. They can't have elections because that's not how it works in Russia. They wait until the guy or if it's a woman, you know, just die on the throne and then they or they have a coup. And that's how they do it, which is not true. It's just a historical situation. And if you look at the regional level, there are lots of cases where governors ran for office and lost in the 1990s. So this is beyond the realm of imagination. We can clearly see that whenever there's a chance, like recently in Yekaterinburg, they had this initiative to try and restore the institution of an elected mayor, because in Russia, even mayors, mostly 90% of the municipalities of Russia are no longer elected. They used to be. So they've tried, they didn't succeed, but there's clearly a demand for that. So even in a kind of adverse environment, people are trying to get those institutions for them. So the question is, what do you think about this path dependence thinking? Two points. One is there is also literature showing that, you know, being exposed to the legacy of communism does shape people's attitudes and values. Uh, Josh Tucker and Grigory Papalekish have a nice book where they show that at the margins, if you were exposed to communism and the more years you lived under communism, the less supportive you are of democracy and markets. But that's a very different take, which shows that the communist legacy is one factor among a great many factors that are shaping people's attitudes and values uh, towards markets and democracy. So we don't need to accept that, you know, the communist legacy is so powerful that it wipes out the human agency of uh, Russians after 1990. The other point I want to make is I was a Russian language and literature major in college. And uh, I still love reading Russian literature, and uh, there's a lot of things in Russian culture that I love that I think are arguably distinctive. But to translate those easily into politics or economics is a really very challenging thing to do because we see lots of common responses to changes in prices, changes in electoral laws, changes in access to the ballot across countries with very different cultures. So that makes it hard to put a lot of weight on arguments like uh, Homo Sovieticus. And even in the United States, look, there are about 20 or 25 percent of Americans who are willing to grant that, uh, you know, in some cases, it's better to have the military in power than to have democratic elections. So it's not as if in heterogeneous population, you get very diverse kinds of views. And to privilege one over others in your analysis, I think, is is problematic. Why do you think this type of regime that tends to persist in time? I mean, one probably simplistic explanation is the natural resources. And uh, that's that's something that you cannot really fail to see, that yes, there is one big source of money and well-being, which is natural resources, oil, gas, minerals, to a lesser extent, more like manufactured things like steel, but mostly it's natural resources that Russia does export and is still successful as an exporter. So do you think those things are connected? Yeah, I think the resource curse is part of the problem. Generally, We've come to realize, I think, in the last you know, 15 years that to build robust democracies that are able to endure shocks is harder than we thought in the 1990s. 
and that one Russia's weak institutions that Putin inherited made it much easier for him to turn Russia into a more personalist autocracy than into, you know, a one-party quasi-democracy, quasi-autocracy, which would have been a very likely outcome, I think, in the early 2000s. I think the timing of the huge increase in oil prices that made Putin really popular in the 2000s, and I, you have to give him credit for managing the inflow of all the petrodollars into the Russian economy quite well, because that can be very problematic for many countries. This gave him an awful lot of leverage over the oligarchs and the regional governors at the time, who, if you remember, the question in 2000 was whether Putin would be able to be influential facing these powerful regional barons and these uh, oligarchs. Uh, and, you know, he's obviously shown that he was able to do that. But the, the governors and the business people lacked a strong organization that they could use to counter Putin as he was able to gradually accrue more power into his own hands. The uh, you know political party that tried to bring together the regional governors had a lot of conflicting interests, a lot of different personalities in it, and the oligarchs were more often fighting than not. So one way that autocrats are often blocked from taking power into their own hands is that they face a powerful organization like a military party or, you know, a strong business community that is able to push back when they see that the autocrat is becoming very powerful. And the timing of the high oil prices and the weakness of the institutions around Putin when he came to power I think are an important reason why he was able to sideline a lot of these other institutions and create the regime that we have in Russia today. Once an autocrat gets power in their own hands, it is difficult to dislodge them. The people around them have a lot to lose if the regime falls, so they fight very hard to keep it. And as I describe in the book, there's autocrats have lots of tools to try to keep the opposition off balance. They use elections, they manipulate the media, they use repression when necessary, and uh, it's difficult to dislodge a sitting personalist autocrat. Yeah, that's true. And I think what's also refreshing in your book is that you make comparisons with other autocracies, other authoritarian systems, rather than with European countries or the United States, even although the United States actually may serve as a sometimes because of these are big places and sort of outside of the European system, both remote in a way, similar histories in a way, again, despite the almost the opposite, the in, in the sense of political. But it's refreshing to see that you are using comparisons with places like uh, Malaysia, Turkey, Indonesia, whatever it is. And I think this is important because this brings out this very important perspective that Russia is almost a typical authoritarian regime. What kind of? Because it's not an Egyptian regime. It's not Turkey, right? Although Erdogan has managed to defeat the the military, as I understand it, I'm not an expert, but I, as I understand it, the military who, who used to be very, very powerful are no longer. So anyway, so where is Russia in that range? There are no you know, perfect comparisons. But if we look around at countries like Turkey, Venezuela, 
Hungary, the Philippines, Malaysia to a lesser extent, we see a lot of the same patterns and the rulers using very similar kinds of tools to stay in power, the way they manipulate elections in a similar way by creating faux opposition parties that run, that kind of crowd out the genuine opposition, the way they use autocratic legalism and uh, repressed political opponents using the legal system rather than bringing political charges uh, against them, the way that they claim to be democratic, but in a different way than, you know, established Western democracies as a way to improve their normative image, both among their public and abroad. And, you know, one of the interesting things that comes out of the research is, you know, Russians really don't like electoral fraud, even though it seems to happen on... Yeah, yeah, they live with it. (laughs) Yeah, but at the same time, I think if the Kremlin were to simply cancel elections, I think that would provoke a response and be very unpopular in Russia. So what the book tries to do is to capture this difficult trade-offs that are inherent in all of these kinds of political systems, where autocrats face the dual challenge of trying to keep the populace off the street and trying to keep their elite cronies who they depend on to run the government to keep them happy. And often that's very difficult to do because their interests are in contrast. For example, in the book, I cite the example of the banking sector in Russia. So on the one hand, banks have been a way for economic elites in Russia to grow wealthy and off the distortions in the economy. At the same time, the, you know, the central bank has the challenge of making sure that there's no banking collapse, because uh, if the banking system collapses and the broader populace loses some portion of their income because of a, a bank run, that can be very politically destabilizing. So the Kremlin and uh, Elvira Nabulina have this difficult challenge of trying to keep enough rents in the banking system to keep uh, powerful individuals happy, at the same time not allowing those rents to become so high that they jeopardize the stability of the banking system. And throughout the book, there's just a number of trade-offs on a lot of dimensions that I think show that you know, although Putin is unrivaled in terms of political challengers, he still faces these difficult trade-offs on a lot of issues. And the tools that he has for addressing these problems are becoming weaker over time. And, uh, you know, as we've seen uh, in the last few years, uh, the reliance on coercion and repression has increased. Yeah, and that's, as I understand it, correct me, is the weak strongman of the title. And if you could uh, also, I mean, elaborate on that, what the actual restraints limits on the supposedly unlimited power that uh, Mr. Putin enjoys. Yeah, Putin is clearly a dominant figure in politics. There's no getting around that. But I think people often make the jump then to say, oh, he can do whatever he wants. And people just respond to what he does because he is so powerful. But when you start to look more closely, you realize that he depends on, for example, the fleeting commodity of personal popularity which is something he worries you know, a fair amount about and the Kremlin often uses to justify his rule. But in order to be popular, Putin has to deliver the goods in some way. Even if economic growth is not booming, he has to ensure that the economic growth doesn't turn 
grossly negative or his popularity would suffer. He also has to face this dual trade-off between satisfying the mass public and satisfying his cronies. On elections, it's important for autocrats to use electoral fraud in order to win the elections, but not to do it so much that they spark a popular protest. Yeah, this is a contradiction in terms, obviously, because they uh, declare the elections democratic and everything free and fair. So but they're pursuing the dual mutually exclusive goal, as I understand it, being those elections are supposed to be both legitimate and managed and produce a desired result, which is amazing. Yeah, these two things are just in tension with each other, and there's no easy way to resolve them. And they form a real constraint. And when there's a lot of uncertainty about how people are going to vote, those trade-offs become even more binding. Like looking forward, I think that the September parliamentary elections, should they go forward, are going to be a very interesting moment. Because if in previous rounds of elections, you had a Putin that was ascendant, in the sense that, you know, there'd been 10 years of economic growth and then after Crimea. Now we have elections that are going to take place where basically for a decade living standards have been flat. And that's a very different environment than we've seen in past elections. So if you could, uh, just for the benefit of our listeners, briefly describe the three areas that you describe in your book, uh, the three constraints on uh, the president's power in Russia? One is that because institutions are very weak, there are no elections that are so free and fair that they can resolve really deep-seated political conflict. There's no constitutional court you can turn to to resolve deep-seated political conflict. Political conflicts are resolved in part by Putin's participation. And those conflicts are hard to resolve forever. And because institutions are weak, Putin can change his mind. So you have two sources of uncertainty. One is that you have this fundamental uncertainty that there's no final arbiter to resolve political disputes. The other is that policy can change very quickly, in part because institutions to constrain the power of the presidency are so weak. And this makes business people nervous. It makes smart Russians nervous about their future, and they often take their rich human capital abroad, and business people often take their physical capital abroad, in part because Putin is very powerful and doesn't face any constraints on his power, and this generates an uncertainty. So because in the end, uh, Putin would like to see economic growth and have capital in the country and have smart Russians in the country... This deep uncertainty generated by weak institutions is a constraint on his power. Another constraint on his power is these dual threats of having to satisfy the mass public and having to satisfy his uh, insider elite supporters um, that I talked about just a few minutes ago. It's best seen, for example, with Gazprom. That's another good example where, on the one hand, it's important for Gazprom to be able to generate enough rents to satisfy regime insiders. At the same time, the Russian public likes to have gas prices that are, you know, relatively low. And uh, so Putin has to divide these, you know, just inherent conflicts of interest that are generated by the nature of the political system. The final set of constraints are just the instruments that Putin has to manage a modern society are really pretty blunt. For example, Media manipulation 
can help at the margins, but you know it's hard to keep selling a vision of Russia as a rising ascendant power when people see their standards of living flat for basically a decade. And you know you can tell people that things are getting better when they notice that prices are going up and living standards are going down. That's a very difficult sell. It's tricky to manipulate elections because you don't want to cheat too much or cheat too little. And also, you can ultimately turn to repression, but repression is also a very blunt tool. And in some ways, it can make the problems that uh, bring people onto the street that much more difficult to resolve. Say people are protesting because the economy is not doing well. Using repression to keep those people off the streets risks empowering the groups who are benefiting from the bad economic status quo and not allowing a change in policy that would make people better off. Often political scientists are worried that kind of repression becomes a self-reinforcing dynamic that is hard to change for this reason. It's hard for a country to repress its way to prosperity. Oh, that's true. What would you think would be an ideal U.S. policy towards Russia? It's a hard question. I know. I will give some principles, though. One is I think we focus much too much on Putin and his personality and trying to psychoanalyze him. And in part because if you look at personless autocracy, even very different kinds of cultures and economies one common theme they have is anti-Westernism. I mean, Orban, Chavez, Erdogan, Putin, this feature of anti-Westernism is pretty much baked in to these regime types. So it's more than just Putin's KGB background that leads to a skepticism towards the West. It seems that anti-Westernism is a feature of these personalist autocracies more than just a bug because of, of Putin's background. So that's one kind of principle I would think that would be helpful for us to think about. Another thing to think about is that we need to remember that, you know, the U.S. is a very secure country. You know, it's bordered by two oceans. It has a, a very large defense budget. And I think there's a tendency every time we see Russian involvement abroad to see this as a well-organized strategy from the Kremlin. And I think Kremlin foreign policy is a lot more responsive to events and opportunities than to a deep-seated, well-organized plan. I think even if you look at the annexation of Crimea, the way it unfolded seems to suggest that many decisions were made spur of the moment rather than part of a long-standing Kremlin plan. I think if you look at Syria as well, despite the long relations that Moscow has had with Syria, you know, there was a lot of reluctance to introduce troops into Syria until things looked particularly bleak for the Assad regime. So I think we need to recognize that politics and policymaking in the Kremlin 
is no better organized than it is in lots of other countries. Okay, so let's conclude. Thank you so much for taking the time and for writing the book, which I enjoyed reading and uh, recommend highly to anyone who's interested or not even interested, just curious about Russia. So thank you. Thank uh, you very much. I really enjoyed the talk. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. The Russia File Podcast is a product of the Kennan Institute at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars in Washington, D.C., and is a companion of Kennan Institute's Russia File blog. The mission of the Kennan Institute and Russia File is to improve America's understanding of Russia and the broader region. For more of our analysis of Russia, Ukraine, and Eurasia, and to read our blog, please follow us on Twitter at Kennan Institute, on Facebook at Kennan.Institute, or visit our site, wilsoncenter.org slash Kennan.